thank you so much, Sarah, for coming to the podcast. And very nice to see you on Zoom face to face. Yay. Yay. Thank you for having me. And this is your second time doing an event with me because the first event was a clubhouse event. So it was audio only. So thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you. This is fun. And I know you have been doing a lot of content and speaking engagements for Local Logic. So why don't we start with a self-introduction, how you got into PropTech, what is Local Logic, and what your team's doing? Sure. So I'm Sarah Maffey. I'm the head of industry relations at Local Logic. And I come from a background where I've kind of touched a lot of different parts of the built environment. I started off actually in construction management. I've worked in economic development and uh, then made my way into commercial real estate on the brokerage side, uh, doing site selection and placemaking, which is essentially uh, asset strategy. And I actually found Local Logic when I was working at Transwestern uh, doing that asset strategy. And I really needed sources of data to be able to objectively inform my clients about ideas that we were talking about, whether it's making improvements to the building or just simply choosing assets uh, within the context of their neighborhood. And when I saw Local Logic and our location scores, I was like, this is it. This is everything that I wanted to you know, be using. So I got really excited and, and now here I am today. And that's how I made the transition into PropTech. Local Logic has been around for about six years. We have built a digital twin of cities. And essentially what we do is we quantify the built world using data and AI to interpret the real estate market throughout the U.S. and Canada. And our real goal is to give a better understanding of cities by predicting, you know, sort of more macro development patterns and then kind of drilling down and understanding the specific micro experience of neighborhoods and sites, what it means to actually be a person in a place. Um, and, and we believe that by doing that, we can actually give our users the edge in making real estate decisions and investments. And I mean, real estate development too. And a lot of our audience are in development or investment, like acquisition, mm -hmm. finding sites and building owners too. And you mentioned digital tween, which is a vocabulary that I've heard a few times before, but I'm not very familiar with it. So it's okay if you dive in a little bit more, please. Yeah, I think that you could create a digital twin on a variety of topics. And, and really what we are choosing to focus on here are value drivers in real estate. So you could have something that's a digital twin to understand supply chain, but essentially, or any other kind of industry, you know, but, but basically what we're doing is we're aggregating different sources of data to create insights and, and basically replicate, create a twin of cities to understand cities data. So for example, which I, I think of them as almost hitting the points of if you were to do boots on the ground, like go visit a site, but you don't have to visit a site because we created a digital twin version of it, if that makes any sense to you. Yes, so, you know, yes. it's things you'd notice when you're standing there, like, oh, is there tree coverage? Are there historic buildings nearby? What kind of schools are nearby? Retail, transit, things like that. All those things you take in, in real life, we've created a, a digital version of it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for explaining it to somebody who is not in the technology side, but more <laughs> on the, you know, the building developer owner side. So thank oh, you so no much problem. for doing that. And I also visited Logic's website mm -hmm. and I love how you guys put a lot of the blog posts, like contents 
on the website, and I found one article that I think、mm. is very interesting: is the eighteen hours versus twenty-four hours city.、Mm-hmm. And is it okay if you talk about this blog post and how is it relevant to both real estate investors and developers when we look for projects and the city locations that we want to go into?、Mm-hmm. Well, I am not familiar with maybe what markets you're focused on in particular, but I think that、oh, Las、yeah. Vegas, my hometown. <laughs> There you go.、Um, I think Las Vegas is a good example, although Las Vegas is such a a vibrant city in and of itself for its own reasons. But I think what we're seeing is you think of traditional twenty four seven cities like New York, L A, and I, I think that there's been. A lot of interest from developers and investors in more secondary and tertiary cities, which still have a lot to offer from an experience perspective, from a vibrancy perspective. You know, they still have urban cores that have cultural things to do, have lots of restaurants, you know, bars, coffee shops, things that are open late. It's not like it's a town that just shuts down at six a six p.m. So I think that's why these eighteen-hour cities are so important right now because. That's where a lot of the investments going, and a lot of the investments going there because that's where the population is moving. And some of the examples are like Nashville or Austin. Oh yeah, Nashville, Atlanta, Austin, Dallas, Las Vegas is a city that's seen a lot of growth.、Um, Denver, you know, those kind of places where they're not the gateway cities, but you know, I think even like Cleveland, Cincinnati, like smaller cities where you're still getting a real sense of place. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of vibrancy, and so I keep saying vibrancy because it, it reminds me of our our vibrancy location score, which really takes into account data on not only that there are restaurants and bars, but really has a, a focus on cultural things to do nearby, which I think is really important in defining those kind of neighborhoods. Yeah, that reminds me of a concept during the pandemic. People have been talking about the migration pattern. Mm-hmm. A lot of people moving out of the gateway cities and move into secondary cities like Las Vegas, Austin, Houston, Phoenix, Miami, and it also ties to single-family rental developments and single-family home for sale developments. I've been seeing a lot of home builders have been really active during the pandemic here in Las Vegas. So, yep, yeah, for sure.、Mm-hmm. I, I think that we have seen this huge spike in interest in. Building to rent and single-family home rental. I mean, there's certain markets or, or certain submarkets. I feel like in these secondary and tertiary cities, where investors are buying a huge percentage of the homes that go on the market, and I think you know it's part of that migration. It's part of us、uh, demanding so much more from the space that we do have in our home that. You know, if we're working from home, if we're schooling from home, and and we're spending so much time at home over the last eighteen months, I think there's been a real reevaluation of how much space we need and maybe what we need access to on a regular basis. And speaking of the pandemic, and you kind of touched on the next question too: is、mm. what are some of the patterns or behavior shifts you see in major city and secondary cities as a result of COVID nineteen? Yeah, I think I might just frame it, you know, again in our location scores because it's interesting. Our location scores are really the backbone of all of our products. We have APIs, we have our our consumer facing web tools, and we have our real estate analytics platform that's really geared towards developers and investors. 
But it's interesting because we're getting a lot of insights from the consumer facing side and like essentially people who are demanding these homes that we're developing and investing in, you know, what, what are they actually looking to be near and how has that changed over the course of the pandemic? And I think one of the things that really just spiked and has stayed super important is grocery stores. Yeah. Which kind of makes sense. Cause I think when I was reading through the data, I just thought <clears throat> this is such a reflection of sort of our human experience of going through the last 18 months where you know, immediately you're not going out to eat as frequently. So all of a sudden you need to still be eating, but you're making that food at home. You need to be um, accessing grocery stores. And I think even from a grocery delivery perspective, you just need to know that one is nearby to fulfill that need. Something that we saw some initial waning in interest in was access to mass transit, which again, makes sense because you're not so concerned about your commute especially as people were not going into the offices frequently, and we're still kind of figuring that out. A couple other things that I think sort of reflect, again, that experience is like there was an interest over time in restaurants again. And they actually, it actually surpassed caring about certain levels of schooling, like high schools, (laughs) because I think people wanted, you get sick of eating something that you made yourself from the grocery store that you were very interested in. And you wanted to start understanding access to restaurants and and delivery and um, takeout and things like that. And the other piece of that, which I think might tie into sort of that population migration and story of moving to maybe larger, larger homes that are not in multifamily is the idea of quiet, quiet levels. So we have a location score that is looking at noise levels and we see that people are more interested in, in quieter areas over the course of the pandemic as well. I think that's probably because you're spending more time at home. I know we were talking about doing clubhouse before and you're doing all these audio recordings, at least I am. And I'm thinking, oh, I hope that my neighbors don't start to mow their, their lawn. Like at the moment that I start recording this, <laughs> but it, just a whole variety of things that you start to notice when you're at home more frequently. Mm-hmm. So for the location scores and the data samples that you guys collect and you mentioned that you see a pattern where people care a little bit more about restaurant than high school selection. Is it because of the millennial families? Their kids are still younger, so they are not thinking about the high school education yet because their kids are still in kindergarten and elementary school versus the Gen X where their kids are, you know, in high school, college. Um, that's an interesting question. I think you know, in the latest report by the National Association of Realtors, the average um, age of a first-time homebuyer was actually 47. So I don't, I don't know. Like that's kind of older than millennial, and maybe that's more the reason why there's so much single-family rental. You know, so location is probably. I think the location is there regardless of whether you're renting or owning. But I think also, I mean, there's been there's been a real disruption in not only working remotely but learning remotely. So maybe. Proximity to schools is, again, something that's almost like the office where if I'm not going to have to actually be there or I don't know how frequently I'll be there, maybe it's less important. Yeah, that's a good point. Single family rental. A lot of the renters are the younger millennials who are starting to have a family and they don't want to Mm -hmm. live in an apartment and they want to have their own space, quiet space where their kids can learn from home or work from home. Yeah, we're seeing sort of that shift in demographics where it's like, the people who 
it's it's literally in the urban core are moving to those single family rentals. And I think there's other factors that play into that, like, I guess, uh, a demographic that has a lot of student loans and might not be able to make a down payment. And, and maybe that's why we see the age of first time buyers being a little bit higher. Yeah, that's a really good point. Student loan. And how will these affect investors or developers' decision on finding site and neighborhood? What are some of the key location scores that you see are primarily like the main focus when a developer will look at it? Um, I think that while we have seen like a spike in grocery stores, grocery stores were always really important. So that remains important to be near. And I think depending on the demographic that you're building for, it can get even more granular than that, like understanding actual brands and of those grocery stores. While transit waned in importance in consumer search, I think it's still one of the higher things that people are concerned with. Restaurants, for sure, are something that remain important and have only increased in importance. Elementary schools, understanding the quality and proximity of those two homes is important. And I think that those sort of things that you think of as being more subjective, like quiet levels and vibrancy, those are really important to understanding your experience in a place. And so I think that developers and investors need to pay attention. A lot of times those are things that they're determining or maybe incorporating into their consideration in a, in a subjective or gut feel way. But our data actually allows that to be considered objectively, which I think is really important so that you're not making a guess at how quiet this area is. And I love how you mentioned urban planning and placemaking because I have made episodes before about these two topics. Oh, really? Yes. I noticed that a lot of the contents in commercial real estate mainly focus on finance and investment side. Mm -hmm. Some are about development, but within the development umbrella, urban design, urban planning, placemaking, these are niche topics that not a lot of people are talking about, but they're really important in development. So what makes a great neighborhood and what kind of data should developers or investors look into when choosing a project location? And could you also dive into the concept of place making too, please? Because as some okay. of my audience, you know, they're in the finance investment side, but I think it would be useful, helpful for them to understand this concept too. Sure. I have been kind of obsessed with placemaking since college, so I'm happy to talk about that. It's interesting. So Local Logic was actually founded by friends who met in the Masters of Urban Planning program at McGill. And so I think that that urban planning mindset really plays into how we think about data and our insights. Like we have a walk-friendly score, for example, and all and, and all of our scores really incorporate the idea of accessibility. So instead of just thinking about how far am I going to be at this site from restaurants or to the nearest Starbucks, distance might not tell the full story. If it's short, but I have to cross a four-lane highway, that's not really that accessible, nor is it a pleasant walk. So we're thinking about those kind of urban planning concepts in how we actually calculate our scores, which I think is important because I think for placemaking, we are considering how people and places interact. And it's not something that happens unintentionally. And there's a lot of 
sort of historic thinking that goes into that from an urban design and urban planning perspective, like what makes a place great? How, what's the goal of that place? And I think good placemaking is sometimes elevating a a sense of place that already exists um, within an existing neighborhood. Sometimes you're starting from scratch. Sometimes the scale is different where you might be talking about it, you know, in, in a particular site, you might be thinking about it at a more macro level, at a neighborhood level or a city level where you get into that urban planning um, scale. But it, it really always comes back to what is the experience for people in a place. And for me, I think a lot of the goal of placemaking is social connectivity and how do you create a place that's going to serve people and create a positive environment for people. And I think that that can differ based on the issues that a, that a place might present. Like maybe you need to add more access to green space or certain services, and that's going to help create a better place for people. But to me, that's sort of like the, the underlying goal of placemaking. So I guess to, to answer your question of like, I think like what makes place great is that how is that the scale of yeah. I was actually going to add it's an art it's an art yes well I think it's an art that can be very informed by data and that's and that's really I mean that kind of circles back to I guess how I came to local logic because I was uh, applying the concepts of placemaking to the asset level, specifically for uh, very large office mm-hmm. buildings and sometimes mixed-use developments or older industrial buildings that were being converted in their use. And while you might have sort of internalized these patterns of development that have gone on, you know, within cities for centuries, there is a pattern to development and you can trace that through data. And that's, I think, a lot of what our modeling can do is really understand like you know, certain age levels start to move in or certain income levels start to move in. You see an increase in a certain type of retail. You see, and these these sort of clusters of development follow the same patterns over time. And it's, it's actually something that you can predict and control. And when you have the data to inform those decisions, you can really de-risk a lot of investment decisions, a lot of, you know, kind of future looking performas, things like that, because there is a lot of data that actually goes into that. And I think a lot of times what developers and investors that I talk to are kind of looking at almost lagging indicators of that underlying data. Like, oh, I, you know, I see that there's a Whole Foods and I would like to build more multifamily near a Whole Foods. Well, there's actually a lot of data that showed change in a development before a Whole Foods went in that might have indicated that you should have purchased land there much earlier and and you could have optimized your ROI. So I think it might appear more creative, but it's actually very, it could be a lot more data-driven than it sometimes is. Yes, that's a great point of putting it. You know, in land development, that's what my company does here in Las Vegas. And a mentor always says, find out where people are moving to Go there and buy the land before they get there. So the finding out part is the data part that we look at. Mm -hmm. 
Great. And speaking of data, what's the future of urban data transparency? I have heard this concept a few times, but I don't quite understand it. So I would love to hear your insights about it and how data transparency can help us to build smart cities, which is another topic that people have heard about in commercial real estate. But from a developer's perspective, we would like to learn more about it. I think that there are certain cities who are really embracing the fact that there's a lot of data out there for them to use as well to inform decision making. You know, the Internet of Things is just bringing so much data to the conversation. And governments are choosing to try to understand insights and actionable insights that could be taken from that data. So it might be um, something like using all of this data to understand how you might want to change bus service, like maybe adding more frequency or changing where the stops are to better serve the community. A lot of times it's used to inform servicing. I think it's, there are a lot of stakeholders in the smart city world. You know, it's, it's not just cities. I think that there's an opportunity for developers to enter into that conversation as well. One of the things we like to talk about at Local Logic is just this idea that if we made data and and these insights more transparent, more available across sort of this ecosystem of decision making that that creates cities, we could better serve our communities. We could create sort of more sustainable, equitable cities if if we unlocked that data on all sides to have conversations about what was actually needed. So I, I always kind of think of the example of maybe I'm a developer and I might need to go to the city to ask for a variance on a site that I want to develop. And maybe I need to work with the neighborhood in order to kind of work out the kinks of that plan and get it approved. But what if I knew based on the data available that this neighborhood really needed a grocery store or this neighborhood really, I know that a value driver and also just a, an experience improvement would be if I added a park on the site that I'm developing. You know, it kind of helps you program what you're planning to present to a community um, in a more informed way, but it also, I think, helps negotiate with the city because a city could also be prepared to say, okay, you know, we, we might be willing to approve you building two stories higher, but in exchange, we know that we really need a park in this area. So can you accommodate that? And then I think that that just helps actually have a more productive conversation around what's going to get built and approved on sites that everyone is actually more satisfied in the end. Yes, and helping working with the community always makes your own project value goes up. So it's a win-win situation at the end. So Mm -hmm. love that. I love it. (laughs) All right, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. And any last comment or stories or anything that would like to share? How would people find out or reach out to Local Logic? I I will put the website in the show note. But do you guys have a newsletter or? Instagram or LinkedIn page that you would like my audience to follow? Oh, yes. Following our LinkedIn page would be great. Our website is locallogic.co. We will be at a variety of different events this fall also so that people can 
hopefully find us and stop by and say hi at Blueprint, Cretac, MIPM, you know, all of the, all of the big ones. I'm sure I'll see you there too. But we also, we have our early adopter program. So if people would like to have a free trial of our platform and join our early adopter program, that's a really great opportunity right now as well. Great. And for those of you who are listening to this podcast, if you're going to Blueprint conference in Las Vegas in October, come stop by and say hi to both of us. We'll be there. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Minja. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.